0: Well, hey, we are right now at the very last of our messages in our series, Strong at Home. And uh, I know most of you have a handout. If you didn't get a handout on your way, wave in because you're going to want it uh, to take notes this morning. And if you're joining us online, welcome, glad you're with us, and you can get the handout too. And what you want to do right now is you want to go over to our website, sm4.org, sm4.org, on the homepage, you're going to see SM4 Updates. There's a lady holding a little sign that says SM4 Updates. Go on there, and you're going to find some big red words that say, click here to download today's handout, and you're going to be able to fill in and join with us, and, uh, and we're glad you're, you're here with us. So we have been tracking the story of a man named Nehemiah. He's one of the kind of famous characters from the Old Testament, and we've been tracking what transpired during his story. It was a, it's an incredible story. We're right now at the end. We're, in fact, we're in the very last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13. Now, to this point, we had seen some great things happen. Right? They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem that had been uh, t- torn down by the enemy. They rebuilt the walls. Worship had been restored. And everything was going Great. Woo! Yes, but now you're waiting for, okay, then what happened? Everything was going just great, but then Nehemiah took off for a while. He actually returned, traveled back to the king that he had been serving before, King Artaxerxes, and he went back for a season before coming back to Jerusalem. In fact, it's It's in verse six of Nehemiah 13. It says, he's writing, he says, I returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. Though later, I asked for his permission to return to Jerusalem. So, everything's going great. Nehemiah takes off for some seasons. uh, Scholars think that it was at least a couple of years. Seems like it was probably two, three, four years that Nehemiah was gone. Now, what do you think happened in Nehemiah's absence? What do you think took place when he was gone for a while? Well, listen, I know what happened when we were kids and our parents were gone, do you remember what that was like? Now, in my home, there was uh, several of us kids that lived in the home together, and actually, we were pretty good kids most of the time. But there were times when Mom and Dad were gone. Like you know, they'd go out uh, for an evening and leave us kids. We were old enough now to kind of like hang out by ourselves. So we would, we would kind of do what we wanted to do when Mom and Dad were gone. And I remember specifically on a number of occasions, you know, they'd say, okay, now we're going out for the evening, you know, but at this time, we expect you to go to bed. (laughs) Ha! Ha ha ha! And of course, we're like, yes, father, yes, mother. We will do those very things. But, you know what, I'll tell you, late night television is very instructive for children, right? Very very interesting for children. And so we'd be watching TV and it's like, you know what, let's just keep watching. Why would we wanna go to bed right now? So we would say, now the cool thing about our house, okay, this was like so perfect for a child who wanted to stay up later than they should have, is that this is what happened, is the way our house was constructed when those cars, when, when the car came into our driveway, when mom and dad were returning home, now my mom's listening right now and she's probably never heard this before, never knew this till this moment. But when that car pulled into the driveway, the headlights would shine through some glass panels in our front door and shine right across the living room wall. It was like this big alarm going off saying, your parents are now home. And so what would we do? Man, that TV would go off. We would run through the dark house. We would dive into it. Because that's what you do when your parents are away. Right? I mean, like, do you remember being a kid? And that's what happened. Well, listen, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem after this time away, guess what? He found that the people of Jerusalem, the Israelites, they did not have headlights going across the living room wall warning them that Nehemiah was returning home. So what did he discover when he got there? He found that in his absence, all hell had broken lives. It was terrible what he discovered. In fact, he found four things that had fallen apart during that season when he was gone. And there's a place in your notes you can write these in so you can follow along. Number one, I mean, this is like, this is crazy what was going on. Number one, he found out that the enemy was in the temple. I mean, the enemy was actually living in the temple. In Nehemiah thirteen seven. He said, when I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyard of the temple of God. Now, who was Eliashib? He was the priest. And who was Tobiah? He's one of the guys that we've been hearing about all through the book of Nehemiah. He was one of the enemies of God's people, constantly working to harass God's people and try to upset the work of God of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, it was like Sanballat and Tobiah, and we'd all boo and hiss whenever we'd hear their names, right? Well, here is Tobiah, and Elisha the priest had invited him to literally move in to the very temple. Of God. Unbelievable. But the second thing that Nehemiah discovers is that all the giving had stopped. Generosity had just dried up and was no longer flowing to the people. We read in Nehemiah 13:10, he says, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work their fields. So who were the Levites and the singers? They were the ones that were responsible for all the worship that was to take place within Jerusalem. They were the ones that kind of like ran church. And when it says that they weren't given their prescribed portions of food... See, that was what the congregation, that's what the people were bringing. When they came to church, they didn't bring money. They brought from the overflow and the abundance of the produce that God had allowed them to have in their, um, in, you know, in their lives. So all the people would bring food and that's what fed and sustained all of those who were serving in the temple. So this is, this is kind of like if our church suddenly decided, yeah, we're just no longer going to give here. Yeah, we're just, we're just going to keep all of our own resource, all of our own funds, everything, and let's just see what happens. Well, you know what would happen. I mean, it wouldn't be you know, much you know, longer until we would have to close the doors of the church because we just wouldn't be able to pay the bills anymore. You know, we couldn't keep the lights on. Um, we couldn't keep our computers running. Well, I guess that's happening this morning. But... <laughs> But, you know, I mean, it's like things would just start breaking down, and pretty soon we wouldn't be able to pay the bills. The collectors would come. We'd have to shut the doors. And then all of the church staff, I mean, those responsible, you know, for the teaching of the word, for leading us in worship, all of those people would say, well, you know, unless we want to starve, we're going to have to leave what we're doing and go find other employment. And that's exactly what had happened in the story here in Jerusalem. The enemy was in the temple, people had stopped giving, and then Nehemiah finds, number three, that God was no longer their priority. Now, what I'm gonna read is like, it would be shocking if you know the history of Israel because in verse 15 it says, in those days I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses." On the Sabbath, they were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. Listen, their worship had stopped, right? I mean, all the, all the Levites and singers, they'd all gone back to doing their thing. And so they're like, we're just going to do our thing also, but listen, if you know anything about the history of Israel and what God had instructed all the way from back in Genesis all the way through was that God had forbidden his people to work on the Sabbath. There was one day of the week that they were meant to keep holy. It's right baked in to the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, it's like it is so, was so much a part of what they knew it was part of their culture. It was part of their, the way that they worshiped God was by not working on the Sabbath. But guess what they're doing? They're like, God, we, you know what? We really don't care anymore. We are no longer prioritizing you and worship to you. We're prioritizing what we wanna do. So guess what? We want money. We're gonna work now seven days a week. And we're just going to do everything normal that we would do on the other days on the Sabbath as well so they stopped prioritizing God. And then the last thing that Nehemiah finds is that literally the enemy was in their homes. Now it started out it says that he found that the enemy was in the temple. Now that was Bad enough. And I think that probably that's where all of this started. You know, I I would imagine that when the people are watching what was going on and that the priest invites like one of the enemies of the Israelites into the very temple, they probably said, Well, why would we want to like give of our produce and be generous to support that? And so then it kind of like ripples out. There's all these ripple effects of what the priest had done. And so what happens is, and we read this in verses 23 and 24, Nehemiah writes and he says, about the same time I realized that some of the men in of Judah had married women from Ashdod, from Ammon, and from Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. I want you to think about this for a moment and realize what was happening here. The very people, the enemies of God that had caused them to like rise up and rebuild the wall to keep those people out of Jerusalem, they now, what, what were they doing? They were actually saying, we want you in our lives. We want you inside the wall and not just to like hang out or do a little business, but actually be woven into the fabric of who we are. So it started out with the enemy being invited in the temple and now we see that the enemy was actually invited right into their homes, into their lives. Now I wanna tell you, because you may be wondering, well, that sounds like, man, was God like into like this racial purity kind of a thing? This had nothing to do with racial purity. In fact, there's some amazing stories in the Old Testament where God like invited in the sojourners, invited in foreigners, and they got to become part of the people of God. But God had forbidden this intermarrying with the enemy. And so what was happening here was not anything to do with racial purity. This had to do with God saying there needs to be spiritual purity. Now, when it says that these women like worshipped other gods, the gods of these enemies, I mean, it's like it's hard for us to even put our minds around, but it would kind of be like if the kids in our youth group said, you know what, we want to start dating people who worship Satan, right? We're we're going to go find people who are actually like worshipping hell itself, you know, would that be okay? Well, That's what moms and dads were going along with. This was like hellish. The the gods that they worshiped were demonic, they were evil, and they'd been part of the destruction of Israel and of Judah, you know, all, all of their history. And now they're intermarrying. Could this have negative results? Well, yeah, and Nehemiah even points out that like half of the children couldn't even speak the language of the Israelites anymore. Okay, well, is that really a big deal? Yes, especially in their context, it would be a very big deal, because I want you to think about it. They would no longer be able to understand the Word of God. Like, if you're not growing up with the only language that God's Word was written in— You know, when they would gather to hear the reading of the word like we've been talking about, guess what? They wouldn't be able to even understand God's word, nor would they be able to worship along with God's people. So they were creating this context in which the next generation would not be able to even know of God or worship God. Hell had broken loose during Nehemiah's Time away, And I believe that what happened in this context exposes something that's a really big deal, not only like for the people at that time, but like for us as well. And it's in your notes. I believe that what this exposed is that the people had not learned self-leadership. Self-leadership. Such an important thing. See, because the people were like, they did good when Nehemiah was there, right? When there was a strong leader in place that was like telling them what to do, that was beaten up on like Sanballat and Tobiah and the enemies. You know, when he like was like in charge and leading, everything went fine. But like little children, when mom and dad are away, that have not learned the maturity of self-leadership, like when we don't need to be like watched over every minute, and when there's not somebody necessarily right there to tell us exactly what to do. When they did, had not learned the maturity of self-leadership, everything fell apart when Nehemiah was gone for those seasons. Listen, if we're going to be strong at home, we must learn the practice of self-leadership. We have to learn to take responsibility for what happens in the four walls of our home. We have to take responsibility for what is happening in our lives. That's what self-leadership is about, taking responsibility for the area of influence that God has given me. I can't take responsibility for what's happening in the walls of your home. I can help you. I can encourage you. I can challenge you. But you have to take responsibility for what's happening in your home. You don't point the finger and blame others, nor do you wait for some other politician or pastor or some other wonderful person to fix what's broken, you actually take responsibility and say, I have to do this. This is my responsibility. And that is the language of self-leadership and what Nehemiah discovered through all this brokenness, right? Enemy in the temple, giving and generosity had dried up. They were no longer prioritizing the things of the Lord. Plus, they had invited the enemy right into their own homes. And he discovered all these things, but it all points back to they had not learned the maturity of self-leadership. In your notes there, you're gonna see something that the apostle Paul wrote that I believe is all about this idea of self-leadership. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win, run to win. Then he says, all athletes are disciplined in their training. You know what discipline is? Self-leadership. It's like that athlete gets up in the morning and says, you know what? I'm gonna get after it. I'm gonna lace up my shoes. I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna hit that snooze button one more time. I'm gonna get up and get after it because I am gonna to run to win. Does that make sense? It's talking about self-leadership. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So we're not just like doing this like an athlete does to like get a, you know, gold, you know, gold medal put around our neck. We're doing because we really recognize that what we're doing has life and death consequences. So our self-leadership, our discipline of of ourselves is so important. So he goes on. He says, so I run with purpose in every step. In other words, every step that I take in my life, I'm doing it with purpose and intention. I'm not just like kind of moseying around, trying to die, okay, I'm whatever, you know. Uh, Today, I think I'm just gonna prioritize my my own stuff. You know, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. No, there's this intentionality that says I am gonna get after it. And then he says, I'm not just shadow boxing, right? That's what fighters do when they're like, practicing. You know, they get, they're like practicing their moves. They're ducking and bobbing and weaving, jabbing, throwing, throwing punches, but they're just doing it like to a shadow. They just are standing up against a wall, like saying, well, this is what I would do in a real fight. No, he says, I'm not shadow boxing. This is what he's saying. I know that I'm really in the fight, that I'm not just like practicing here, but there is a real enemy and there's a real fight going on. So I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm getting after this. And then he finishes by saying, I discipline my body like an athlete. I know what it's like to take on self-leadership, training it to do what it should. And then he finishes by saying, otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be Disqualified disqualified. That is exactly what had happened in the story of Jerusalem and what Nehemiah returned to find. The people had disqualified themselves. Well, disqualified for what? Well, not disqualified from God's love. God still loved his people. But you know what? They had disqualified themselves for being used as part of God's Ongoing story. They were just all messed up, inviting in the enemy and and just letting their priorities get all jacked up. Right? And it's like, how is this possible? How could this happen? And, you know, but in reality, I think we know how it could happen because we know our own stories and we know the stories of friends people who have been doing really well, rebuilding things in their life, like really getting on track, but then what happens? You turn around and you come back and you check in with them just a little season later and you find that the wheels fell off, that they're back in those destructive Behaviors that you know they they stopped uh, fellowshipping with other believers. They started to prioritize their own stuff, and they started to let the enemy back into their story. You've watched this happen, and maybe you've even said, "You know what? This has even happened in my home." So we understand this is the way life sometimes works, and we disqualify ourselves if we are not practicing self-leadership. So what did Nehemiah do when he found these four things that were like totally falling apart and had, uh, you know, all hell had broken loose? What did Nehemiah do? Four very simple things. And I think in here we can learn from what Nehemiah did in our own lives. In fact, I believe that very simply, right here, Nehemiah gives us a master class in self-leadership. He's going to give us four things right here that he did that we can implement in our own lives to practice self-leadership. Number one: get rid of what doesn't belong. Get rid of what doesn't belong. What we find in Nehemiah 13, 8, is that when he discovered that Tobiah, the enemy of God, was in the temple, you know what it says he did? He went in and he got all Tobiah's stuff that didn't belong in the temple, and it says he threw it out. Take to the dump what doesn't belong. It's pretty darn simple, but it's really hard to do. Listen, what doesn't belong in your house? If we're going to be strong at home, we've got to say, what doesn't belong here? And then take self-leadership. Like, you don't wait for, like, the pastor to come and knock on your door and say, hey, let's, let's go through your browser history, okay? Let's sit down and let's just look in your browser history, what you've been surfing on the internet. You don't know, wait for that. You don't wait and say, hey, let's just open up the cupboards here. Oh, oh yeah, let's, let's look and see what's going on. We don't go through and look at the magazines you've been collecting. You, we don't do any of that stuff. You know what we do? We take self-leadership and say, you know what? This doesn't belong in my home. I'm going to throw it out. And if you're having just that little bit of wonderment about, well, what would it be that maybe doesn't belong in my home? Here's a real simple way to discern that. What are you hiding? You know, what do you not let the kids see? Well, believe me, kids have a way of finding what doesn't belong. They do. I did. Hey, you know, that part of my story, finding stuff that didn't belong in our home. Kids do that. What are you hiding what would you be embarrassed if, if one of your strong brothers and sisters in Christ came over and discovered what it was? Anything that is hidden probably needs to be shown the door, and that's the first thing that he did was he threw out of the temple everything that did not belong. Second thing that Nehemiah did is that he put things back in order. He put things back in order. When he found that the people were no longer being generous and giving to support the work of the temple, it says that Nehemiah immediately confronted the leaders and then put back into a structure so then all of a sudden the giving just started right back up again. He put things back into order. And we have to ask ourselves, where has my life gotten really lax? Where am I out of order in my life? Now, listen, this last year of the pandemic, I think, has exposed a lot of things in our lives that may be in order, maybe out of order. Maybe where we've kind of caved into things and, and just because everything else was going on so rough outside of our home, we kind of tried to cocoon ourselves. And maybe there are things that have slipped out of order in our homes, in our lives. I think one of the things in this coming season that we're gonna to have to deal with is that where people have just gotten really comfortable. Now, these are people of God, people who love Jesus, you know, people of the word, But they've said, you know what, I just kind of find it's really easy to like on Sunday mornings, like stay in my pajamas, eat my waffles, and kind of like maybe just like watch church online. That can serve us for a season. And you know what? I think everybody, every once in a while, needs a waffle Sunday. You know, it's like, hey, guess what, kids? We're gonna like make waffles and watch church online together. That's beautiful. I mean, this is no you know, manipulation or trying to put you know, uh, you know, shame or cast shade on anybody. What this is about is about the patterns that we get into. And we need to realize that being part of a church community actually means that we commune with each other. And I believe that part of putting things back in order means that we are not isolating ourselves from other followers of Jesus. So the second thing he did with, and I think we can learn from for self-leadership, is put back things into order that have slipped. The third thing that he did, super important, was that he created new safeguards. He put some safeguards into place. When he found that like the Sabbath had been violated, the people were working on the Sabbath and then they were like bringing stuff in to sell on the Sabbath and it just violated the priorities of God, you know what he did? He said, yeah, we're not gonna do that anymore. But not only are we not gonna do it, I'm gonna put safeguards in place. He did two things and you can read about this in verse 19. It says that he, um, number one, set a new policy, set a new standard. We're going to lock the gates of Jerusalem. You know, they built the wall, built the gates. We're gonna lock the gates every week when Sabbath begins. So on Friday evening, click, gates get shut. Hard to go in and out and do business when the doors are locked, right? He put a safeguard in place. But the second thing that he did, he didn't just say we're gonna lock the, lock the gates over, over Sabbath time. It says that he put some of his trusted people at the gates to make sure it was actually happening, right? That there wasn't somebody that was just gonna like, well, we'll just let this person in or let that person out. And no, I mean, he put some of his own trusted people there in order to what? To safeguard the Sabbath. To safeguard things that would be, what we would say would be prioritizing the Lord. What do we need to do To put safeguards in place. I don't know, like, you know, I was talking about our browsers and you know our phones and things like that. There are tools that we can put in place. You know, we can put internet blockers that block out stuff that shouldn't be there. You know, at least it gives us fair warning and say, hey, probably should not be going into safeguards. You know, some people take their phones and, and set limits on their phones of like time limits and things. You know, uh, some people have learned the discipline, the self-leadership of like, my phone goes to bed before I do. Right? Like I I take my phone and I literally, I plug it in in the kitchen. If you call me in the middle of the night, you're not gonna reach me. Sorry. Because my phone goes to bed before I do. I plug it in far, because I know what would happen. And it's happened before. You know, go to bed and you're scrolling and... An hour later, you're scrolling and, you know, losing sleep, losing the energy. But also, it just drains me. I I can't do that. We have to put safeguards in place. So for me, safeguarding has to do with, like, plugging my phone in another room. My phone goes to bed before I do. But you know what? That second thing of inviting in someone you trust to help monitor what is going on. You know what that's called? accountability. Find someone that you trust deeply and say, hey, I've really struggled in this area. This area has been really tough for me. And so I'm taking these steps to safeguard, but I'm, gonna, I'm inviting you in to make sure that I'm doing what I said that I would do. Setting safeguards in place. Great practice for self leadership and then here's the last thing that we find that Nehemiah did that we need to do to practice self-leadership and it's to get aggressive about it. Get aggressive. Can you come on through your masks? Can you say aggressive? aggressive. Come on from the courtyard. I hear you guys out there get aggressive. Do you know what it says that he did? when he found that men were like inviting the enemy into their homes and were intermarrying, it says that he brought down curses on them and that he beat some of them up. I mean, here's Nehemiah, man. He's like, dude, we're gonna have words. And he's calling down curses and like, boom. What are you doing? I mean, he was like he was getting aggressive for the things of the Lord because he knew if these things continue, we're dead. We're not just going to be not strong at home. We're going to end up back in ruins. And the story of God in our family line, listen to this, the story of God in your home will Be destroyed if you don't get aggressive about it. Well, what do I mean by get aggressive? I mean, should we start calling down curses on people and start beating them up? No, I don't think that's what God has for you and for me. But we can be just as aggressive to get after these things, to throw out things that don't belong, to put into new practices, to put safeguards in place, to really be aggressive about it. There have been times in my life when I have had to confess the darkness that was going on in my heart. When I had to find somebody and say, you're not gonna like this because I certainly don't like this, but this is what is true about me right now. And I'll tell you, there takes that, there has to be that Passion and that aggressiveness that says, I hate the sin and the brokenness that this is gonna lead to, even more than my embarrassment about it. And I'm not just talking about when I was an adult. There was times, and I've shared some of these stories in the past, but there were times even when I was growing up and was a child and was an adolescent when I even like went to my mom and my dad and confessed what was going on in my heart. I think that's one of the most aggressive things that we can do is to go and to radically confess and to pour out and say, I need help here. I need need help. To get after these things so that they do not destroy our lives. So four things that I believe are this masterclass in self-leadership. But I wanna finish with this, because self-leadership for people who are followers of Jesus means that I'm not following my own agenda, I am following after Jesus. And guess what? He has empowered me to do that very thing. It's in the bottom of your notes there, but Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, I love what it states here. He says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power. For who? For us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Listen, we need to be reminded that we in us have the same mighty power that rose Jesus from the dead. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have put your trust in him by his Holy Spirit, he has empowered you to actually self-lead, to like, I can live a disciplined life. I can say no to those things that would kill me and say yes to those things of life that would lead me into that followership of Jesus, to walk in his steps. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And we need to be reminded of this, that that's one huge advantage that we have over the people of Israel back in Nehemiah's day. They had God, they had his word, but the Holy Spirit had not been yet poured out upon them. That didn't come till some thousands of years later when now we've got the story of Jesus coming and saying, I am now gonna give you my Holy Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit now in our lives who does not just point the way to go, but also empowers us to go there. So church, we can do it. We can be people who are strong at home. And I believe this concept of self-leadership as we follow after Jesus is so important because the crazier that the world, listen to this, the crazier that the world gets outside the walls of our home, the stronger our home needs to be. And the crazier the world gets outside of our homes, the more self-leadership that we need. Because we need to be those who are pointing the way and being even a safe place for others. For our children, right? And kids, for your friends, for people at school, that you'd be a safe place, that you'd be able to show them how to live wherever you go to work, wherever God has given you influence, we need people that are going to be strong in those environments so that we can not only create a safe place for ourselves, but for the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to the end of this series about being strong at home, as we come to the end of this conversation about what Nehemiah experienced, And coming to a place that had been devastated by the enemy, but rebuilding the walls, reestablishing worship, and building this strong, healthy community, (laughs) only to see that problems still were cropping up. The wall was strong enough to keep the enemy outside, but it wasn't strong enough to keep them from falling apart inside. Inside. And God, for us to keep ourselves and keep our homes, to keep our families from falling apart, God, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit's strength. So God, that we would be people then who could self-lead. That we would say no to the things of hell and we would say yes to those things, Lord, that would lead us to be more and more like you. So God, we give ourselves to this pursuit. Lord, we wanna, we're gonna throw out stuff that doesn't belong. And God, we're gonna invite you in. Lord, as we set up whatever kind of practices and systems and safeguards that we would need. And God, we were gonna be passionately aggressive about these things, knowing that if we don't, Lord, that the story of your work in our family's line can be cut off. And God, we don't want to tolerate that because we want to be families. We want to be people who are known as your people that are part of your story. In Jesus' name. Listen, and, and as we just read about this incredible, great power of God that's available for all who believe in him, if you're someone who says, you know what? I don't know that I've ever actually said, I believe in you, God. I put my trust in you. But I wanna do that right now. I wanna do it today. Well, listen, if you're online, I invite you to like, just like type it in. Like I'm putting my trust in Jesus today. We have people who are gonna reach out to you and are gonna say, hey, we wanna encourage you. We wanna partner with you in that. But if you're here today, And you say, you know what? I need to rebuild my life. I need to proclaim that I believe in Jesus. You may have never done that before or it may be something that like you haven't done in a very long time. And like the story here, your life has fallen apart and you're saying, I need to return to Jesus. I wanna declare my trust in him and what he has done for me on the cross and if that's you here today, whether you're out in the courtyard or you're in the sanctuary, I just want you to put your hand up right now as a signal and saying, I believe in Jesus, amen. Anybody else that would say, I believe in Jesus. I am like, yeah, out in the courtyard, absolutely. Jesus, I thank you for these, Lord, who are declaring once again their trust in you. And Lord, I pray that the very promise of your word would be shown in their lives. That God, that the very same power that raised you from the dead is now right now present and alive in their stories as well. And all of us can claim that promise. That Jesus, what you said is true. And that what your word proclaims is true. That we have been given your power to fight these battles so that we can be strong at home. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, church, you are loved. I to invite some of our prayer people to come on up and uh, just be here and available. If you have a prayer need, we want to be able to pray for you before you leave. And if you're online, if you have something that we could be praying with you about. Hey, please go over to our website right on the homepage at sm4.org. You're going to find a virtual connection card where you also can just click on there, tell us what's going on, and we have a team who prays, and we're going to be praying for you this very week. Church, you're loved. Two Sundays to Easter, two and a half weeks till we begin Alpha, and I'm going to be sharing more about that next week. But get your hearts ready for that because it's going to be, I believe, something incredible for our whole church family. You're loved. We're going to see you again next Sunday. Have a good week.